Hi, this is Rafiv Ziada, and you're listening to 3CR, pro-Palestinian, happily proud radio. Hey, I'm Nikki Stott, and you're listening to Earth Matters, produced and broadcast at 3CR Community Radio on Wurundjeri and Bunurong Country. This week on Earth Matters, we'll hear from two Indigenous knowledge holders speaking at the Bush Heritage Australia's live storytelling series. It's called Bush Nights, Stories of Water and Replenishment, and it was held at the Mechanics Institute in Melbourne. Later in the show, we'll hear from Brad Mogridge, a Camilleroy man and PhD candidate exploring Indigenous science approaches to water management and their integration with Western scientific frameworks. But first up, we'll hear from Tyson Yungapoda of the Upperletch clan from Western Cape York, who's a senior lecturer at Deakin University in Indigenous Knowledges and the author of Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. I usually like acknowledge country in language. And so, Wutmanko, Wurundjeria, Ngainapka, Wapa, Akpulungatra, Ngulmunka. But I also want to say, <laughs> um, this is weird. It's, a little, it's an Ungaredi poem about a spear and, and, and uh, water. Um, lancha, lancha suave, lancha non più macchiave. Il tuo non è ferire, ma dolcemente aprire. Napri o che tesoro, tesor che acque ai d'argento e sangue d'oro. And um, I think that Italians are the best breed of settler because they understand family, they understand regional identities shaped by a landscape and languages. There's so many different regional dialects in Italy, you know, that are still formed by those landscapes. Their towns, their cities are all built around a spring at the centre and that's a sacred place and people still gather there and, and be humans together. Um, so I think that has something to do. The Irish are all right too. <laughs> the rest of you are great, <laughs> but uh, you know stuff at hierarchies exist. <clears throat> <laughs> so uh, I'm going to do this one because it's a, a good story for this. I think. Oh, this is called "Be Like Your Place." By the way. Yeah. There has been a drought for ten years, and us two are out on stone country near Tibberborough in northwestern New South Wales with some elders singing a rain song. We're excited, but the old fellows are not because they can see the pattern, and we're having trouble seeing beyond the deep-down thrill of power, the possibility whispered from our egos, I can control the weather. <laughs> so we miss the pattern. And we see only drought relief and rivers flowing strong again and a hell of a story to tell around the fire. We are children who don't know what else will come from this and we don't give it a second thought. So we literally sing and dance up a storm. What the old fellas can see are the beetles already climbing the riverbank and the swifts flying urgently and close to the ground because they know what's coming, signalling to all the other animals to move to high ground and plants to shift their energies into strengthening their roots, 
Gigi trees also signal a warning by emitting a powerful scent that smells like rotting broccoli. They follow the groundwater too. The long-suffering sheep and cattle and cotton crops don't catch these signals though. And even if they did, they're incapable of moving with country or digging in. Their owners have fenced in their livestock and are watching meteorology reports on television in houses built on floodplains. The rivers will flow and then burst their banks and overrun the levees around small towns. Shops will close and families will go hungry for a while. Those rivers will flow again. But that water will be halted by dams at Menindi and released when the appropriate officers see fit. It will change things in multiple systems in three different states. It will be halted again by floodgates at the Murray River mouth and released into the sea months later, creating the dynamic mix of fresh and salt that the sacred system of the Kurunk depends upon but hasn't seen in years. There will be a dust storm that will sweep across the state from Tibbaburra and cover Sydney in red earth. I don't know if you guys remember this when that happened. Elders there will see this as a big ceremonial action marking the streets and buildings and people with the colour of red ochre. Uh, People will have to replace their stained clothing and the malls will experience a spike in trade. The red dirt will go into the sea and cause a massive algal bloom clearing the air in a huge carbon sink while temporarily restoring fish stocks as they feast on this sudden abundance. Unemployed fishermen will enjoy a brief revival of their industry and markets will fluctuate along with the queues at Centrelink as welfare demands fall and then rise again when the fish are decimated once more. Inland, settlers who had abandoned their dusty properties and left small towns in droves will return with the green grass and the Aboriginal residents will be in the minority again. The activities of the police force will ramp up along with rents and housing prices. It takes a long time before the water reaches the mouth of the Murray River, long enough for us two to travel down to the Kurong to be present for the moment when the floodgates are opened. There are dead penguins and seal carcasses washed up on the beach, and the place feels post-apocalyptic as we stand on the sand and wait for the fresh water to come. We see it uh, tumbling towards us, swirling and frothing while out to sea shapes are moving in the deep. They spiral and play frantically, and one of them breaks away and swims towards us. He arrives at the shore just as the fresh water hits the same place, and he lumbers across the sand to sit in front of us. This is not like any seal we've seen before. He has a beard and is barking in a human language our brains don't recognize, but that resonates somewhere deep in our bones. He glares at us with his fathomless eyes, then turns and shuffles back into the sea. Everything is creation. And there are patterns to perceive there. If wombats are on the move, the sap is running in the gum trees and it's time to cut bark. If the tea trees are flowering, lychees and cherries will be available at the supermarket. Where Jingle Bell Rock will be playing in an interminable loop 
Controls preventing capital flight are announced in one country, so in another country the real estate market will plummet. Interest rates will come down in response to rising unemployment here. Loans will be taken out to fund infrastructure projects, buildings built of sand scraped from the sea bottom that will buoy up the construction industry, the biggest employer. Later, there will be cuts made to social programs when those loans need to be repaid. And then there is the weather. In the US, a couple hires a weather modification company to prevent it from raining on their wedding day. And there is a forest fire in their district two weeks later. Elsewhere, iron filings are dumped in the ocean to create algal blooms for carbon capture experiments in climate engineering. Silver oxide is sprayed in the sky to seed clouds for rain, temporarily clearing the pollution from a city that's hosting a sporting event. Thailand innovates a cloud seeding technique that makes it a world leader in the field. While online companies advertise their weather control expertise to governments all over the world, I see on the website for Weather Modification Incorporated um, that an Australian state government agency, uh, it was Queensland, I didn't name it here, but that's who it was, has procured equipment, pilots and training uh, for an extensive cloud seeding project involving the spraying of toxic elements in the sky. I write to the agency asking for any research they've done on the environmental and human health effects of this program and they respond with links to web pages showing research into the levels of rainfall produced by the project. I ask again for health and environmental impact studies and receive no reply. Weeks later, I return to those web pages to find they've been removed. If land and people are not even considered as variables in these weather experiments, then it is certain that all the interrelated elements of dynamic land, water, weather systems and the knock-on effects of geoengineering are not informing these activities either. The people conducting them are like children doing a rain dance. Future survival of all life on this planet will be dependent on humans being able to perceive and be custodians of the patterns of creation again, which in turn requires a completely different way of living in relation to the land. Hey, that's it. And that was Tyson Yungapoda of the Upalech clan, author of Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Next up, Brad Mogridge, Camilleroy Mann and PhD candidate exploring Indigenous science approaches to water management. Yama, everyone. First of all, acknowledge country. Um, Wurundjeri mob, uh, acknowledge their country and they are custodians of a great river and um, I thank them and their elders for allowing me to be here and acknowledge Brother Boy here and um, any other Indigenous people in the room. So I suppose thinking about water stories, water is uh, a key part of what I do and why I'm sort of standing here as well. I started my journey early, about 65,000 years ago, um, when I started engaging with water. But I, I suppose I'm, in the last 40 years, we'll say, 
Um, I, got, I had a real interest in science, so science was a pathway for me. Um, I was told I'd never be good at science and I shouldn't do it and I probably shouldn't do maths either. I had to do maths in the garden, we called it. It was basic maths in year 11 and 12 and I actually got into a Bachelor of Science uh, on my own accord and started doing geology. Um, I was ducks of geology at my school but I think thinking about what was under our feet, I also had a real interest in the water that that was under our feet and... um, I really connected with groundwater and, you know, to my mobs uh, where, where northwest New South Wales up towards the border rivers between New South Wales and Queensland, inland. Uh, my family's uh, mum was born in Narrabri and um, Nan was in Tumala. That's a, probably a name some people might have heard. Um, but, you know, we're right at the base of the Great Artesian Basin. So there's a lot of springs in our country. There's a lot of recharge and discharge areas as well. So connecting with these places was, was a no-brainer for me, but connecting with the science was a way I thought I could um, explore that a bit more. Straight out of school, I did geology, and uh, I did industrial experience, and I found myself in the Great Sandy Desert um, looking for uranium in a national park. And so that didn't sit too well. I loved learning about the earth. I loved learning about how I could, I could see country differently and I could see the formations. And I think that was, that was really exciting. And then sort of, you know, a bit later on I'll talk about some of the stuff that sort of popped up and now about sort of geologic history as well and, and traditional knowledge. But um, then I, I switched over to environmental science, which was a, 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 an obvious transition for myself. And I was doing a... Um, an assignment, or it was yeah, it was like our assessment task, and, and I was creating um, a guide for bush uh, bush regen teams, to how to identify Aboriginal sites in sandstone country in Sydney. And so I'd got a lot of, I'd done a lot of engagement around that area, but I, around the Barara Creek on, that flows into the Hawkesbury River, and I'm walking with the Hornsby Shire Council Aboriginal liaison officer who was Chinese, um, and we're walking along. And I noticed a lot of these small engravings of fish and things like that, like sandstone country in Sydney, is, there's a lot of um, beautiful sandstone uh, engravings. And, and we got to this point, there was a fresh flowing stream right behind me and there was a small overhang with some um, ochre art in it and hand stencils and, and like, as I said, the, the area had um, like fish and things like that. So I, I said to the lad, I said, look, man, I don't feel right. This just doesn't feel right. And he said, oh, it's a women's site. All right, let's get out of here. So I suppose that sort of feeling, I went, oh, shit, that, there's, there's something there that's telling me to get out of here. You know, so it was the, the women saying, hey, boy, move on. But um, then I, I moved into my groundwater studies and I had these three water holes in my head and I was thinking, what are they? And I thought, look, I'm going to paint it. So I painted it and I was out up on country um, at a place called Mungandai, which is sort of the, the start of the the Darling River, or the Barwon, Barwon Darling River and the end of the McIntyre. And it's still on my country and I was talking to one of the old men there who was, he was a cousin and, and I was telling him about these three water holes that I'd painted and he said, boy, I'm going to take you there. So I'd never been to these places. And like the hairs on the back of your neck, you know, that was happening to me and the, the back of my neck was, was warm and fuzzy. So, you know, the, um, knowing these places were talking to me or singing to me, you know, and I suppose that, that was really cool. And then I, I probably got 15 minutes of fame out of my groundwater thesis, so it was Aboriginal people and groundwater. 
So I'd just come off doing hydrogeophysics, hydrogeochemistry, and my supervisors, I was going to do urban salinity because that was starting to rear its head in Western Sydney where I was then living. And um, he said, oh, you're, you know, you're Aboriginal. I said, yeah, yeah. He was in my sister's pizza shop at Jeringong and I had a painting in her, in her pizza shop that she wanted just for the wall. And um, he sort of said, why don't you do Aboriginal people on water? And I said, I didn't know I could. And he goes, if you mention the word groundwater, I'll mark it. And I thought, you know, that sort of... That gave me the, the, a real buzz, you know, and then I got to start looking at how Aboriginal people engaged in water and um, their knowledge, you know, we are the driest inhabited cotton on earth and you move away from, like, the, the coastal zones or the southeast, the riverine country, and it's going to be groundwater. If you don't know where water is and you don't know how to refine that water, you're not going to last long. So those stories I really connected with and some of those stories... Um, were really, uh, I suppose, inspiring. I, I remember I was in, um, I was on a national committee, water committee, giving advice to the National Water Commission, and um, we're in Catherine River, uh, in Northern Territory, and we we're with a, an old man there, Bill Harney. He's a brilliant man, and he was talking about we had actually had the Northern Territory government with us as well, and he was talking about this story, um, you know, that there's all these different water holes on his country. You know, there's yellow water, there's black water, there's white water. And he said they're all, you know, he said they're all related to, to the soils and the geology. So that everything, he said, the fish, and they all have different medicinal purposes. But he said they're all connected. And um, the then Northern Territory had a man called the, the water controller. I keep thinking of the fat controller. But um, the water controller, so he controlled the water in the Northern Territory for the government. And um, he's standing there nodding, nodding away and... Um, it was, he got to the say that, you know, they're all connected. So the Northern Territory government said, you're dreaming, old man, even though they're all dreaming stories. Um, so the Northern Territory government spent hundreds of thousands of dollars drilling. Guess what? They're all connected. So those dreaming stories that they had, he had of all these places, told him that they're all connected, even though, you know, they're all different sort of soils and geology and things like that, but underneath... You know, they'll have stories about, the, you know, let's say the rainbow serpent, but they're all connected. And that's the same in, um, in Sydney. Um, while I was researching my thesis, um, Guringatch and Mirrigan is a story that survived, you know, colonisation, which is very close to the Sydney basin, so the Coxes River and Wallandilly River. It's a story, you know, it, was, it created the Janolan Caves, you know, those sort of stories are, are pretty rare to survive. And that old man that told it was in the bottom of Burragrang Valley where the Warragamba Dam is today. You know, Burragrang Valley is, is now flooded, but he was on the mission and he told that story back in the, I think it was the mid-1800s. But even thinking about my country as well, we have a, a, a story, and I think that was one of my exciting bits of connecting with water as well. So we have a place called Boober Lagoon. Um, it's an old, you know, in geomorphology terms, it's an old river path um, but it's of, of the McIntyre but what it is is a place where uh, a large snake type creature with a crocodile head so it's not a, not a nice beast but it used to uh, call the gutter and it used to terrorise the mob up there and um, you know by taking people and taking animals so one of the warriors said look I've had enough of this so he got his, got his spears and um, off he went, threw a few spears at the gutter 
and obviously the guardian wasn't too happier, happy, and he chased him all the way through our country, and hence that's the creation of Booba Lagoon. So it's about 5.7 k's long, um, but it, it looks exactly like a snake has just carved its way through the landscape. And um, the warrior got to, the, to this bumble tree, which is one of our um, fruit trees, and uh, which is the, the Gadia's mother-in-law, um, and the Gadia would not come any closer. But they, um, you know, that sort of story is there, and that, and that Gadia still lives in that lagoon today. And, you know, there are still stories that, you know, kids have disappeared, sheep just disappear, cows just disappear, and I suppose our mob fought really hard because originally that was a water skiing park, it was perfect for water skiing, and so... We couldn't use state legislation. It took an act of federal parliament to actually get the water skiers off our lagoon and they got their own lagoon in, in town in Gundawindi but we got our lake back and I suppose there's a lot of our old people there. There's a lot of um, scarred and carved trees and I think that's, that's, you know, we say it's probably the, well, it's our most significant site. You know, it's part of initiation for men as well um, but, there, you know, there are women's places as well around the lagoon but it's, it's one of those places that's super, super important. I was chairing a session at the Australasian Groundwater Conference um, just, just late last year and um, I had an Indigenous session and we had some, some women rangers come and we had uh, a drilling team that was working with them talking about um, their country and they were from the Great Sandy Desert and they were talking about this place and they were about to drill looking for water and this old man said, oh, if you drill over there you'll, you'll find an old river, ancient river. And so when they drilled there, they found a paleo channel, so which is a, an ancient river that's probably 10,000 years old. And, you know, this old man just said casually, yeah, that's an old river. So he knew that sort of stuff. And, you know, that's, that sort of knowledge, you know, where we're part of a, an old knowledge system that is, I believe, is science uh, because it is generations and generations of observation, of knowing your country, knowing every bit of every plant, every animal and what their role is. And I suppose you're, you're testing that environment to make sure that you obviously respect that environment but also you survive. And I think that's, that's the exciting bit about traditional knowledge is that it can actually add to science and I think that's what I'm trying to do for water is that we don't, we don't value water the way we should. At the moment, when you think about the Murray-Darling Basin, water is a commodity. So we've separated land and water. And if Aboriginal people want water, they've got to go to the market and buy it. So if they, they want to go buy water in the Namoy at the moment, in northern New South Wales, $1,000 a megalitre. That's in dry times, but in wet times, it's about $80 a megalitre. So you can sort of see if you've got water, you've got some serious power. That's so why it's, it's so political, and I suppose... The other thing was when I look at the way we manage water, I didn't see Aboriginal voices in water. Just weren't there. You know, as I said, we're the oldest living culture on the driest inhabited continent, but we don't have a say in water. And also I got tired of hearing other people tell our water stories. And I wanted to be, you know, take these microphones, for instance, and, and tell our stories our way. And I think that's the bit that I'm trying to inspire, you know, my kids, but, you know... I, I, a generation to try and take that opportunity and, and take hold of those microphones and tell our stories. Oh, I'll give you a, some light reading. So talking about climate change, actually, there's an um, Australian geographer had a special edition 
2016, I think it was. So there was a, a paper by Nunn and Reed. It's a local story here, and they're looking at trying to validate tradi- Aboriginal knowledge. And so they're looking at flooding and sea level rise, and they, they dated that around 7,000 years, and it talked about those people in Port Phillip Bay had to move up country to higher ground because the sea level started to rise. And that sort of stories, you know, that's validating knowledge, you know, and I suppose it becomes a... It's not mumbo-jumbo and it's not myth and legend. And I think recently I just saw something that the Gunditjmara, you know, they've got stories talking about Bajbim um, erupting. That's 37,000 years ago. Those sort of things is, is bringing those, those stories to life but also trying to change the culture of science. You know, I've, I've infiltrated the system. I'm, I'm working with the Academy of Science and the, the Academy of Technology, Science and Engineering, trying to get them to think differently. You know, they, uh, they have no Indigenous fellows. They're all male, pale and stale. Um, <laughs> sorry. sorry. Sorry to us men. But um, that's it. You know, that, that's it. Um, you, the, the academy is full of men, you know, and I think that's the way they think. They've got, they've got a, women, a woman CEO and they're starting to, to have a cultural shift and that, that's really exciting. So being part of that and seeing the opportunity that one day, you know, maybe an elder will be recognised for their, their knowledge of country... Oh, that's nice. Their knowledge of country about... Um, being a science, you know, recognised for what they have. Um, and, you know, we've, we've got Gunditjmara with, the, with their um, eel traps being recognised by United Nations, so cultural landscapes are starting to, to show up in, in the way we look at the landscape. And I think what also I want to do is make sure that Indigenous knowledge is in the centre. It's not, not an elective like I had to do. My son's doing an elective now. Um, indigenous values and knowledge is normal. We just bring it back, it's just taught. That's it, it's the way it is. But also the way we think about water and, um, and science, you know, the way Indigenous methodologies can influence the way we teach as well. And I think there's, there's a lot of, lot of scope there to, to make a difference and bring the curricula up to speed, you know, and, and turn, get excited about these old stories in the Australian context because we don't really value Aboriginal knowledge in Australia. I don't know why, but I think we should. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Today on the show we heard from Brad Mogridge, Camilleroy man and PhD candidate, exploring Indigenous science approaches to water management. And earlier in the show, we heard from Tyson Yungapora of the Apalech clan, senior lecturer in Indigenous knowledges and author of Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. And you can easily find it online. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in bringing you this program today and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Melbourne. And we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for now, but tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories. Thank you.
G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 8.55 on your dial. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing whitefellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. Those people who have no land rights haven't got justice, but neither do those people who have land rights have justice. You're listening to Community Radio Network around Australia. So stay tuned as we bring you news, live updates, music and interviews with Aboriginal people from around the country. The only free body we have is the Aboriginal government on the grassroots and the Aboriginal embassy on the lawns outside the old parliament house. We will not go away. And as that stone rests in that mountain, and as our spirit rests in this country and over this country, we will not go away. Neither shall our power pass. And that's here forever until justice comes. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.